I'm Pastor Michael. Uh, I appreciate everyone braving the cold. This is a, a wintry Christmas service, but we have none of the fun of snow. So Christmas is a wonderful season of the year. Songs and festivities, it's a time of family. And if you're a Christian, you have these beautiful stories of the birth of Christ. But the challenge is that because of our familiarity with them, we can miss the real drama of the stories. Especially for Joseph and Mary. You see, when they received the announcement of the birth of Jesus, it turned their world upside down. And so I want us to look at the story with fresh eyes. And I want us to appreciate what it must have been like for them to receive this news, and I want you to know that it was not good news. It was bad news. It was bad news. And so what does this tell us about the meaning of Christmas, and what does this tell us about the joy of Christmas? And so with that in mind, let's read our text. This is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Um, I'll read it for you. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. So I have uh, three points, and this is my outline. Number one, We're going to look at the strangeness of God's favor. And then we're going to look at the two names that are given to Jesus. We're going to see that Jesus means Savior. And then secondly, Emmanuel means God with us. All right, so let's begin. Number one, the strangeness of God's favor. So this is a story that we all know and love. Mary, as a virgin, conceives and gives birth to the baby Jesus the Savior of the world, and then the angels fill the night sky singing glory in the highest, joy to all people, and it's a happy story. And you have countless churches with nativity scenes, and everyone is smiling, everyone is smiling. But I want you to know that that is not how Joseph and Mary experienced it. How Joseph and Mary experienced it is that it was an absolute disaster. 
And you can see that in the text because when Joseph realizes that Mary is pregnant, he decides that he has to divorce her because it's pretty much the worst thing that could possibly happen. You have to understand that Joseph and Mary lived in a small town. And in a small town, everybody knows everyone else. Everybody is up in each other's business. And so when people find out about Mary's pregnancy, they are not going to think, oh yes, this is the Son of God conceived by the Holy Spirit. They are going to think, mm-hmm, we've seen this before, another unwed teenage pregnancy. And in that day and age, in, in that traditional culture, that was incredibly scandalous. And therefore, this was an absolute personal and social disaster for Joseph and Mary. And for the rest of their lives, they will never escape the shame and the scandal of this. There's a very curious place in the Gospel of John. If you read John chapter 8, Jesus is contending. He's, he's debating with the local religious leaders in Galilee. And at one point in the argument, they say something that seems out of place. It doesn't seem to fit. In verse 41, they say, Yes, but we were not born out of sexual immorality. In other translations, they say, We weren't born out of wedlock. And it seems to come out of nowhere. It, it doesn't fit with the flow of what of the of the rest of the conversation. And most commentators will note that this is a not too subtle dig at Jesus, at the shady circumstances of his birth. I want you to digest that for a moment. Jesus is around thirty years old, and they're still talking about it. Thirty years later, and no one has forgotten because Joseph and Mary never lived this down. And here we see the strange pattern of God's grace. uh, God comes to Joseph and Mary and they are the recipients of His divine favor. And like so many, you know, devout Israelites, they would have prayed and they would have prayed, Oh Lord, Deliver your people from oppression. Come down and show your power in our lives. And then God answers their prayers. Mary is going to give birth to the Messiah. And then what happens is that their life does not become better. It becomes much worse. And it must have felt like for them that their life was falling apart. They were isolated. They were alone. Nearly everyone rejected them. I want you to know that this is true not only in Joseph and Mary's life, but this is how God so often works in your life. I want you to understand that when God answers your prayers, when God works His mighty power in your life. So often, your life doesn't seem to get better. It seems to get worse. The problems compound. Your troubles seem to be more difficult. 
This is the pattern of God's grace. We see this pattern not only in the life of Joseph and Mary, but we see this all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Bible. Consider the story of the Exodus. The Jewish people cry out for deliverance. In Moses, God comes to them and he says, I'm going to save you and I'm going to take you to the promised land. And then immediately afterwards, instead of heading north into Canaan, God takes them south into the Sinai wilderness. Instead of bringing them into a lush landscape flowing with milk and honey, God leads them into this howling wilderness full of scorpions and thirst. God says, I'm going to bring you into paradise. And then he takes them into a desert. Or consider the life of Joseph. God comes to Joseph in a series of dreams. I'm going to do great things through you, Joseph. My grace and my power will be shown through your life. And then immediately afterwards, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's falsely accused of a crime he did not commit. He's thrown into prison and he's left there to languish for years. God says, Joseph, I'm going to do great things in your life. And Joseph becomes a slave and a prisoner. We see this again and again throughout the Bible. We see it in the life of Abraham, in the life of Moses, in the life of King David, the Apostle Paul, Peter. Those whom God shows favor and grace, their lives become totally upended. Why? Why would God do this? And the answer is because God loves you. God is not primarily concerned with giving you a smooth and pain-free life. He wants something far greater for you. And He will not stop until He has achieved His mighty work in your life. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis in uh, Mere Christianity. Listen to... Listen to what he says. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. But you, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. What C.S. Lewis is saying and what the Bible is telling us is that 
your ambitions for your own life are so small. You know, most of us, we just want a life of comfort and security. But what God wants is spiritual greatness in your life. You know, most of us, we just want a life of ease and predictability where we go from strength to strength. But God desires for us a life full of godliness and beauty and truth. And the only way to do that is by leading us through seasons of trials and suffering. Because only through afflictions, only through what seems to you like failure and rejection is God awakening you to His love. Is God opening your heart to glories you cannot imagine. Right now, some of you are going through what seems like an absolute disaster. There's a crisis unfolding in your life. And your life is hurtling towards what seems certain destruction. And you're wondering, where is God? Has God abandoned you? And the answer is no. This is God's wise and loving hand upon your life. One of my favorite quotes is by John Newton. He says, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Let me say it again. Everything is needful that God sends into your life. Nothing can be needful that God withholds from your life. You can think about that for the rest of your life and you will never exhaust the wisdom and the truth of it. So let's go to the second point. Jesus means Savior. So in this story, an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and he instructs Joseph to name the child Jesus. Jesus is the English transliteration of the Hebrew name Yeshua. Yah means God, Shua means salvation, Yeshua means God saves, because that is what Jesus came to do. He came to save us from our sins by taking the guilt of our sins upon himself. That's the gospel. And this is beautifully illustrated to us in the story. So I want us to look at the story again. So Joseph and Mary are betrothed. You have to understand that in that culture, when a Jewish man and woman are engaged to be married, the betrothal period lasts for one year. For one year, they're engaged. And during that time, they are not to have sex. Okay? This is very important. No sex before marriage. But during that time, they are so bound together, they are so pledged to one another, that in order to break the betrothal, you have to actually take the formal step of divorce. Notice in the story, even though Joseph is not formally married to Mary, he is called her husband. Now, what happens in the story is that in the middle of the betrothal year, okay, before they get married, in the middle of their betrothal year, Mary gets pregnant. And she's beginning to show. Which means soon, 
Everyone's tongues are going to flap and everyone is going to know. And they're going to think either that she has been unfaithful to Joseph so that this is another man's child or they're going to think that both Joseph and Mary have been unfaithful to God and through premarital sex, this is their child. Remember that this is a small town. Everyone is up... Let me pause for the the plane. Remember that this is a small town, okay? And in a small town, everyone is up in each other's business. And therefore, Mary's life is ruined. For the rest of her life, everyone is going to look down at her. For the rest of her life, she will always be on the outs, always despised. Remember John chapter 8. They never forget the scandal of this. But Joseph had something that Mary didn't. Because Joseph could divorce Mary. And in doing so, he would be distancing himself from the scandal. Because if he divorced her, he would be telling everyone, she was unfaithful to me. I had nothing to do with this. And then Joseph would be protected from her disgrace. Do you understand? All Joseph had to do was get a bill of divorce. And the brokenness of Mary's life, the shame and the reproach of her life, he would be immune from. And in fact, the story tells us that's what Joseph was planning to do. He was a good man. And so he was going to minimize her shame. He was not going to make it a public spectacle. He was not going to denounce her in the town square. But he was going to get a divorce. And we shouldn't blame him for this. Because remember, he's innocent. He did not act dishonorably. So why should he bear the blame for this? But then the angel comes... And it's a bombshell revelation. This child is God's long-awaited Savior. And through this child, God is going to rescue the whole world. So the angel says to Joseph, don't abandon Mary. Take her as your wife. Wed her, marry her, Joseph. Now you have to understand what this means. Because if he stays with Mary, what is everyone going to think? Again, they're not going to think miraculous virgin birth. They're going to think, mm-hmm, Joseph couldn't wait. Joseph couldn't wait for his wedding day. And then all the scandal and shame of Mary's pregnancy would fall on him. You see, Joseph was faced with a stark choice. Either 
he could maintain his innocence, he could protect himself and stand apart from Mary, or he could rescue Mary from a life of shame and certain poverty, but only at the cost of losing his reputation, losing his standing in society, so that for the rest of his life, he would be treated with contempt. With contempt. That's the choice Joseph faced. Joseph can stand apart and be safe, or he could join Mary and be condemned. Joseph wakes up from his dream, and he obeys God, and he marries Mary. And in doing so, he is a picture of how Jesus saves us. But you know, unlike Mary, we are truly guilty. We deserve all shame, guilt, and punishment for our sins. But Jesus Christ came into our world so that he could stand with us. The Bible says Jesus is our heavenly bridegroom. That's the imagery. He came to marry us, to wed us. And in doing so, our shame and guilt become his. Even though he's the truly innocent man, he's the only perfectly innocent human being who has ever lived. But on the cross, he bears the shame and the reproach for our sins as our bridegroom. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Third point, Emmanuel means God with us. This is the astonishing message of Christmas. That the baby lying in a manger in Bethlehem is God with us. Almighty God came down and became a human being with all of our infirmities and weaknesses. And he lived among us. And he absorbed all of our sorrows. And he suffered and he wept with us so that he could rescue us. And that's the gospel. And if you are a Christian, you have heard this before. You understand what Emmanuel means. But you know, sometimes we forget the wonder of it. You know, because we're so familiar. And so I want to say it again, but with a story. And this is a movie illustration that... um. I actually used many, I've used many times, especially in the early years of the church, but it's been a while. So I feel like the statute of limitations on illustrations has run itself out. And so, you know, for you old timers, you, you, you'll maybe recognize this story, but I hope it's edifying. When I was in college, I, I watched a movie that really had an impact on me. And the movie is What Dreams May Come, starring Robin Williams. You probably haven't heard of it. It's a rather obscure movie. It didn't do very well in the box office. But in the movie, there's a character played by Robin Williams. Let me, let me pause just briefly.
So in the movie, the character played by Robin Williams, he dies in a car accident. And then he goes to heaven. And that's the setting of most of the movie, right? It, the movie is a sort of imaginative take on what heaven is like. Not from a Christian perspective, but the movie imagines heaven to be this lush, painted landscape filled with laughter and joy. But what happens is that Robin Williams has a wife, Annie, whom he dearly loves. And after his death, she spirals into depression and commits suicide. Robin Williams is sad to hear this. But he is so excited to be reunited with his wife in heaven. But then he's told that people who commit suicide are the only ones who go to hell. Because they are so trapped in despair. In their own darkness and misery, he is told that they are imprisoned in a hell of their own making. Let me pause here for a moment and say, I do not think everyone who commits suicide goes to hell. The Bible says Christians are capable of committing terrible things, but nothing is beyond the grace and the forgiveness of God in Christ. And even suicide is not beyond God's grace. But back to the movie, okay? So Robin Williams is told that no one who commits suicide can be brought back out of hell. But he refuses to believe. He refuses to accept it. And so he finds a tracker, this special guide, who then takes him into hell. And it's this arduous journey, and they have to travel through this frightening and malevolent landscape. And then finally, in the middle of hell, he finds Annie. She's sitting in the ruins of their old house. And before Robin Williams goes in, he's warned by the tracker that it's impossible to bring her out. She won't recognize him. She doesn't even know she's in hell. There's no way to persuade her. No arguments will work because she is trapped. And then the tracker warns Robin Williams. He says, you have only a few minutes to go inside before the reality of hell envelops you, before it sucks you in, and then you will never be able to leave. And the tracker says, this is for you. This is really just your chance to say goodbye. But you have to give her up. There's no hope of bringing her out. Robin Williams goes inside and it is just as the tracker says. She is in her own world of suffering and despair and nothing he says can convince her to come out with him. After a few minutes, Robin Williams goes back out to the tracker and he says, you're right. I can't bring her out. And the tracker says, so you give up then? And Robin Williams says, yes, but not in the way you think. I'm going to join her. 
And the tracker says, but you're going to lose heaven. And Robin Williams says, I don't care. I just want to be with Annie. And so he goes back into the house. And he sits down with Annie in her sorrow. And he joins her. And all the sadness and pain and suffering goes into his heart. And he descends into the darkness with Annie. And of course, there's a happy ending. Because that's how he saves her. Because when that happens, Annie finally recognizes her husband, that he loves her. And in that moment of recognition, they're both taken back up into heaven. That movie made a big impact on me. I remember watching it, and I remember just weeping, because it's a picture of what God did for us in Jesus Christ. You see, in the fall, we rebelled against God, And we created a hell of our own making. And we became trapped in our own misery and darkness. But God loved us so much that he didn't insulate himself from our pain. But in Jesus Christ, in the incarnation, he sat down with us and he joined us. And then he let all the wretchedness and suffering and darkness enter into his heart. That's what happened on the cross. The darkness entered into Jesus' heart. All the suffering and evil of this world came down upon Jesus, and the full weight of it crushed him. Because that's the only way he could save us. If Jesus Christ stayed in heaven, he would be safe and protected, but we would perish. But if Jesus left heaven and he came to our shattered world, his very heart would be pierced with sorrow and grief, but in doing so, he would rescue us. He would give us eternal life. This is the story of Christmas. How shall we respond to this story? The only right response is worship and to be filled with wonder and to believe in Jesus and to trust Him because He's good. Let's pray. Almighty God, when we consider this story of Emmanuel, that this baby in the manger is your condescension, your incarnation, that you took on flesh, that you let all the sorrow and the the weight and guilt of sin come crashing down on you in the cross, our hearts, are, our hearts finally recognize that you love us. 
we finally see that you have not abandoned us in this world, but that you mean for us good and glories we cannot imagine. We pray that we would respond with praise and adoration and joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.